They've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, welcome to Bible with the Barbers. Ooh, we made it. On Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Yeah. I get my microphone to cooperate there you go. here. So uh, we ask the angels to join us here and we pray a Sanctus. I like to pray it in Latin. Okay. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaoth. Pleni sunt celia terra, gloria tua, hosanna in excelsis. Benedictus qui venit in nomine domini, hosanna in excelsis. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. So we have uh, some readings here. Oh, there's a good one from the first reading on the second chapter of Colossians. I love that one. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Yeah, that's great. St. Paul is telling us, uh, brothers and sisters, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, rooted in him and built upon him and established in the faith as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one captivates you with an empty, seductive philosophy according to the tradition of men, according to the elemental powers of the world, and not according to Christ. That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. No, really, isn't that safe? Secular humanism and all the things? Well, and a lot of what he was referring there to is is Gnosticism. And the Gnosticism is there's this secret esoteric knowledge that isn't available to everybody and is hidden from so many. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't hide his gospel. Okay, so we received Christ. We received Christ Jesus, the Lord, first of all. When we receive the gospel, we're receiving a person. So our faith, yes, it involves dogmas, it involves doctrines, but it's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. And it's interesting, um, Monsignor mentioned at Mass this that morning beautiful. that if Father Benedict Rochelle gave a retreat to priests and he yeah. said, if you have a personal relationship with Christ and you know who he is, yeah. you'll be able to keep your vows. But if you don't have a personal relationship with him and you don't know who he is, you won't be able to keep your vows. Well, what is he talking What's about? What's that implying, though? Well, here's the deal. We have a whole world full of theologians and biblical scholars yeah. who are telling us that, oh, Jesus, he's a jolly good fellow. He's a jolly good fellow. <laughs> or he was a nice guy. He gave us a really good example. Yeah. But end well, of it's story. An ideal. You know, it's an ideal that we strive. No. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is God? Do we believe that God became incarnate yeah. and became man? Well, you know, what do we believe? That's right. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked. Yeah. It makes a difference. It's sure very important how we answer that question. And Jesus claimed to be God. And they put him to death for claiming to be God. So. Well, well Mary, I just have to jump in and say, <laughs> uh, you know, that's a mouthful what you said. But I think it's indicative right now that we return back to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that our church can get cleaned up because right now we have so many scandals and I would agree with you that uh, we've lost the centrality of Christ. We've, we've compromised with the world on the moral teachings, many of us in the church. Yeah. And so when we do what Monsignor said at Mass right. and we go back to giving our lives to Christ, 
then the graces are going to be there to be faithful husbands and wives and priests, not just priests. It applies Everybody. to us. Everybody. Exactly. Everyone. All across the board. Yeah. And that's what gives us the strength to be faithful day by day. Yeah. Christ was faithful day by day, and he gives us the strength. Why? What do we read here now in the second paragraph there? For in him dwells the whole fullness of deity bodily. Wow. That's and mouthful. you share in this fullness in him. How do we do who, that? Who is the head of every principality and power. Because Jesus Christ became <laughs> man. Yep. He really is God, though. He's not... He's not a split personality, by the way. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He's one person mm-hmm. who took to himself a human nature. And by taking himself to a human na- taking to himself a human nature, he takes our human nature and elevates it. And he unites us to himself. And in uniting us to himself, we don't become God. No. But we get to share in God's life. Monsignor brought up the early catechism. The first yeah. question. What's the first question? Baltimore who catechism, made right? you? Well, God made you. What's interesting is in the older version of the catechism, the second question, um, why did God make you? The answer actually is, the first answer is, God made me to show forth his goodness and to share his everlasting happiness in heaven. So God made me to show forth his goodness and to share his life with me. And with each one of us, each one of us can say that. God made me to share his life with me. And that's what this is saying. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, which was a scandal. It's an absolute stumbling block to the Jews and an absurdity to the Gentiles. But this is the reality of what God has done because he wants us to share in his own life. And how are we going to do that? By knowing him, loving him, and serving him. But we have to know that he really is God. Exactly. And, you know, we talk about that word sanctifying grace. Yes. Okay, and that's a, a theological term. But when we're baptized... We share in that fullness in him into our baptism, and then we have confirmation. Uh, man, I'm telling you, when we understand what these graces do in our life, and then we cooperate them with those graces by living in the state of grace. grace. Of grace. And so it's really quite simple, but hard to practice. Right, and, and that, the thing is that God gives us the strength, but exactly. do we ask for it? We have to. Do we want to live it? Yeah. We have to want to live it. And mm-hmm. if we don't think we want to, well, then ask God for the grace to want to want Amen. to. Amen. <laughs> it's like, well how far back do I have to go? You know what, Lord, I got to get to step, I got to get to yeah. the first base, and I haven't gotten there yet. Mm-hmm. And Paul goes on to tell us that in baptism, we were buried with Christ, mm-hmm. and that we have been raised along with him from the dead. Well, what is he talking about? He said, when you were dead in the transgressions and your uncircumcised flesh, he brought you to life along with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, obliterating the bond against us with its legal claims. So Jesus came to free us from sin. What is the bond that keeps us from God? Sin. And this is what Jesus comes to free us from. In baptism, we die with Christ. We die to sin. And we're baptized with him. And through that, we're raised. Baptism is, it, 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 that's why they did baptism by immersion, but not just by immersion. It wasn't the only form of baptism in the early church. They sprinkled water and they also poured water, right? depending on the circumstances. But it, when they did immersion, the symbolism is that you go down into the water and you die to sin, that's right. to rise to life. And it's not just an ideal. God really gives us the grace to overcome sin. We have that power because we have Christ living in us. 
And you know, Mary, what you just said is one of the church teachings, perennial teachings of what, about we have that grace. And unfortunately, we're living in times where theologians have compromised that teaching by saying, this is just an ideal to live in the state of grace. We know you're going to fall short. So don't don't worry about, you know, falling into sin. God, Jesus loves you and you can stay in your sin. And that's just not true. That's not true. And here's the deal. If someone were really, really sick, deathly ill, there you go. Good mortally one. ill, do you just say, oh, gee, that's too bad. You know, maybe they could just yeah. an operation would save them. Maybe just a little medicine would save them. Right. And you're just saying, oh, well, you know, that's too bad. That's uh, you're a nice person and it's all OK. And so that you're suffering. Uh, and, and but what do we do spiritually? You see, this is why Jesus established the confession. Yeah, he knows we're going to fall. The just man falls seven times a day. Mm-hmm. The just man. Yep. <laughs> he falls seven times a day. Right. So Jesus gave us confession. Why? To take away the sins so we can go to confession and confess our sins. Humble ourselves before the Lord. Keep asking for the grace. And But are we asking? Are we willing to ask? Are we willing to say, you know what, Lord? I need your help to keep your yeah. commandments. I need your help to be faithful. Yeah. I need your help to love. Mm. Because you see... As a result of original sin, Lord, I just want to look at myself and feel sorry for myself and have everybody else in the world serve me as if I were God. Mm. You know, we want to do what Adam and Eve did. We want to make our own morality. We want to decide what's good and evil apart from what God has taught us. And that's not where Jesus led us. So we need to pray. We need to accept that Jesus Christ is really God, the God man, God made flesh, But he's only one person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. But he gives us the grace that we need to overcome our sins. And that's why we have the sacraments. Well said, Mary. And I just want to add that uh, Monsignor talked about that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to just say, as Catholics, Holy Communion is so personal that we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And when we just heard about the Pew Research last month that many Catholics don't believe in the real presence, well then, my gosh, how can they have a personal relationship with Jesus if they think they're only receiving bread? Yeah, it's not bread. This is not bread of fellowship. This is not some kind of a symbol. This is not some... This is Jesus Christ, really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread. What was bread no longer remains after the consecration. What was wine no longer remains. And it's really the risen, ascended, glorified Lord, Jesus Christ, as he is present in heaven, is present in the Eucharist, and he feeds our soul on his own flesh and blood. And that's how more, what more personal relationship can you get? I mean, seriously, this is the closest, most intimate way he comes to us to be the food, not only for our souls, but for our bodies, to redeem our bodies and our souls, to raise us up to the level of union with God. Well said. Mary just finished the women's conference this Saturday, last Saturday, and all of our monthly donors are going to be getting copies of the talks awesome. via an email. We're working on editing them right now, so probably by the end of the week, Every monthly donor will receive that. And if you want to be a monthly donor to receive all the talks of our conferences, go on to virginmostpowerfulradio.org or call us at 877-526-2151. And when we come back, we've got the gospel of today. Whoa. I'm having fun. I hope you're having fun. I hope you're being inspired, informed about your Catholic faith because that's what we're here for. We'll be back with much more with the Bible with the Barber. 
Welcome to our January 11th, 2020 Spiritual Warfare Conference. Every year without fail, this is our most popular, well-attended event. This year's Spiritual Warfare Conference will host Adam Bly, a Catholic demonologist, and an auxiliary member of the International Association of Exorcists, along with Dr. Luis Sandoval, a psychiatrist who's part of the Healing, Deliverance, and Exorcism team for the Diocese of Orange. These two gentlemen bring tons of experience and expertise in the area of spiritual warfare. This is going to be a high-information Catholic seminar. I'll be there as well, sharing some riveting stories on the diabolical and liberation found through Jesus Christ from my best-selling book, The Devil in the City of Angels. Mark your calendars, come and join us, and meet other radio hosts from Jesus 911. Contrary to popular belief, spiritual warfare is not demon-centered. It's Christ-centered. Come join us and learn how to armor up and fight the good fight of faith. Catholics, wake up. Don't hit the snooze button. Join us at St. Christopher Catholic Church, 629 South Glendora Avenue, West Covina, California, on January 11, 2020. See you then. Strength and honor in Jesus' name. selling your home or your business property this is terry barber real estate for life underwrites the terry and jesse show and they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world and when they receive their referral fee they will give 80 percent of it to a pro-life organization wow that's 80 percent realestateforlife.org 877-LIFE-US-1 Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Yep, you're on. All right. Welcome back to Bible with the Barbers. And uh, we have the gospel. We, we looked at the first reading, which was from the letter to the Colossians. And now the gospel is from Luke 6, 12 through 19. And it's interesting. Where do we get this idea that we need some kind of a personal relationship with God? Jesus departed to the mountain to pray. He spent the night in prayer to God. Well, what is prayer? Dialogue with God, with your Father. A loving conversation with someone who loves us. Mm -hmm. A personal relationship. Jesus spent the entire night in prayer with his Father. Why? Why did he spend this whole night in prayer? Well, when he came down, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he named apostles. So before he chooses the 12 apostles, he spends the night in prayer with his father in this personal loving communion. And, and so this is an example for us. We need to have this personal loving communion with God. And, he, and then we get the names of the 12, Simon, who was named Peter. By the way, in every list of the apostles, his name is always first. There's a in reason for that. Every list in the New Testament, his name is always first. Mm -hmm. You know, the other names come in different orders, but his is always first. 
his brother Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a stretch of level ground, a great crowd of his disciples and a large number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And even those who were tormented by unclean spirits were cured. Everyone in the crowd sought to touch him because power came forth from him and healed them all. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus heals people. Now, Jesus' primary purpose for coming was not to eradicate human suffering. But his miracles are a sign because he does these things. In the Old Testament, the priests of the Old Testament had the power to do exorcisms. And they had the power to to work miracles. But they did them in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Jesus does all of this in his own name. He's not calling on a higher power. He himself is working the miracle. He himself is driving out the demons. And he's showing very clearly by doing this that he's God. And again, as St. Paul would say in the letter to, to Colossians, the fullness of deity resided in him in bodily form so that God is walking among us and he still remains with us in the Eucharist. Jesus Christ is still Emmanuel, God with us, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread and wine. By the way, this is why non-Catholics can't just go to Holy Communion. This is not bread of fellowship. This is not just a, a, a symbol or an eschatological sign pointing to our union with God in heaven. This is really Jesus Christ. And St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians warns that to eat the body and blood of the Lord unworthily makes us guilty of the Lord's body which means guilty of killing him and it also would condemn us so read the corinthians the letter first letter to the corinthians it's very important i think it's important because we have this uh theologians again saying that we have the accommodation of communion to our non-catholic friends that somehow we're not being hospitable for them when they can't receive holy communion but it's just the opposite right just the opposite we're We're, we're compromising with what Jesus Christ taught right. uh, because we want to be polite. Right. And I, I, I say this because it's unfortunate that we put man over God. Exactly. And the, the reality is that the, the, the scripture is very clear. We need to worthily receive our Lord, and that means that we need to be not conscious of any grave sin. And we also need to discern the body of the Lord, which means we need, if, if a non-Catholic is committed, admitted to communion in the Catholic Church, there are, there are circumstances, very strict circumstances, under which that can happen. But that person has to profess the faith that the Catholic Church accepts, that we believe that Jesus Christ is really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the presence of bread and wine. It's not bread and wine. It's really Jesus, his risen, ascended, glorified body. And they have to believe that. And one of the ways that we acknowledge that is an outward sign before we receive Holy Communion. Exactly. And, you know, priests tell me it, it really hurts them when they see people receiving communion unworthily. Yeah. They see it just like it's like a out of habit. And so if we genuflect, we're on our knees or a, a, a profound bow, then that's our sign saying that we believe in the in the real presence of Christ. And, again, the Pew Research 
came out last month showing very few people in the Catholic Church actually believe in the real presence. I have been doing a study for 40 years. My wife knows I go up to people and say, <laughs> hey, what do you believe about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? What do you believe about the Mass? Yeah. And and for 40 years, it's, it, it's, it really strikes me to see the ignorance out there. Right. And so if we're making a big deal about it, it's because we think we need to do this because so few Catholics you know, understand what they're receiving when they receive Holy Communion. Right. And Mary, let's be honest again. I'm going to be honest. I was in the confession line last Saturday. It was first Saturday, right? Yeah. And we had more people at, at the confessional. Because it's first Saturday. Because it's first Saturday. But we're still talking only 40 people. Yeah. Out of a 30, parish of how many? 5,000 families. 5,000 families? See, we've <laughs> lost the sense of sin. We have lost the sense and of so sin. And so therefore, we go to Holy Communion not knowing that... Really, we're bringing condemnation on us. Exactly. It's not, this is, it's not, we don't receive Holy it's Communion lightly. Here. We confess our sins. Go, we have to make sure that we are not having commit a, a mortal sin before we receive Jesus in the Eucharist. And we have to have fasted for at least an hour beforehand, fasted from all food and, and drink except for water. And if you have medicine, you have to take it at a specific time. You can take that. But you, you're not supposed to eat anything or you shouldn't be coming up to Holy Communion chewing gum or having mints in your mouth. or This is you're breaking the fast. And St. John Paul II yes. wrote a document in 2002. You know what he said about abuses? Because he oh. says they contribute to the obscuring of the Catholic faith and doctrine. Exactly. Just what you're saying. I exactly. Pope is saying, right. Mary, you're spot on. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, there are people, there have been Protestants who were told by Catholic priests oh, that... Yeah. You know what? You're you're being con- there. Were, you know there are Protestant denominations that have confirmation. Yeah. So now you're receiving confirmation. So now in any denomination that you attend, you should be receiving Holy Communion, even if you're ca- even if it's a Catholic. And it's like, no, that's not right, Father, because if a Protestant doesn't believe that it's really Jesus Christ, body, blood. First of all, Saint Augustine said we do not receive Him this without first adoring Him. Yeah. So if we don't believe it's Jesus, how can we adore him? And if we believe it's consubstantiation like the Lutherans, With. we can't adore either because then it's, who do we adore, Jesus or the bread? Because the, the Lutheran teaching is that Jesus is present in the bread and mm-hmm. wine. Well, then that's, that's idolatry because then we're adoring elements. We're adoring created elements. No, the Catholic Church teaches that it's really Christ, not in the bread and the wine, that no bread and wine exists after the consecration. That's right. And, and St. Augustine said, we do not receive without adoring. Mm-hmm. So we should adore Jesus in the Eucharist before we receive him. And not only do we not sin by adoring Here it comes. him, Go ahead. we do sin by not wow. adoring him. Wow. So to receive Jesus in the Eucharist without adoring him is a sin because well, he is God. That's strong language from St. Augustine, honey. That is strong language. And the church repeats that. She yep. re- Pius Twelfth in his encyclical uh, Mediator Day, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. He repeated that, and he said, "No, this is, and this has to. We have to realize this is really God. Jesus Christ is really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread and wine. And no one should be coming up to receive Him who doesn't believe that. And no one should be coming up to receive Him who's conscious of living in the state of mortal sin, even if it's habitual. Go to confession first." Mary, I want to quote the Second Vatican Council saying that the Holy Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian faith. And I know this is off topic, but I'm going to put you on the hot seat because I get a lot of 
let's just say ultra conservative people who are trying to tell me that the Second Vatican Council is an illegitimate yeah. council, and I have to tell them they're dead wrong. Right. So would you like to say a few words about that, that we've talked about that in the mornings? Well, anybody who wants to say that Vatican II is an illegitimate council, number one, I challenge you to read the documents. Yeah, read it first. Because I've heard some of these people speak, and when they speak about Vatican II, the things they're talking about are not what the council the mandated. Spirit. They're not what the council said should be done. They're the things that were done after the council That's that right. were done in disobedience, That's which, right. by the way, that little document by St. John Paul II talks about these abuses yes, and yes. says they need to stop. Are we listening yes. to the Holy Father? Are we doing what the church says? And if you also think it's an illegitimate council, read the document and then read the footnotes, honey. Please read the footnotes. Yeah, it's very clear with that. It's extremely clear. The church isn't, you know, it, it's like what did Bishop Sheen said. If you don't think you have a connection to the past, yeah. check tonight and see if you have a belly button. Okay, check. If you don't think Vatican II is connected to the past, check tonight and see if there's a belly button. See if there are footnotes there that refer you to St. Irenaeus and the fathers of the church and the doctors of the church. Well, that's why interpreting Vatican II with the the hermeneutic of continuity and what you just said, what that means, you do the hard work of looking up the footnotes, as you said, and if something is ambiguous... You interpret in light of the continuity of the faith. Exactly. And the council tells us this. If something appears ambiguous in the documents, we're not changing church teaching. Nope. Go back to what is clear and make sure you know it. You know, it, it, And it's interesting. Sometimes we get confused on things. And this might, you know, this is kind of, but it just reminds me of, I, I, I heard a, a podcast host saying something about, well, the Council of Trent said that women, oh, yeah. wives, can't go out in public by themselves. And so he's he's taking that now and he's transposing that into the 20th century and saying wives can't go out of their homes without their husbands. At least that's what it sounded like. Of course, that would make sense. But what's interesting I is something. I asked somebody about that, a <laughs> priest who knows that very well, and he said, well, wait a minute. Read the Council of Trent in the light of the historical Context in which it was written. Well, for women at that time, the only women who walked the streets alone were prostitutes. There you go. So a woman, a decent woman, didn't go out of the house. She needed her husband for protection because if she was out on her by herself, she would be thought to be a prostitute and she would be molested. Exactly. So there was a reason for that. Don't just take it into out of context. Don't take it and read what the church teaches about marriage and about the equality of men and women. Read Casti Canubi. 1930. And I know I my mother walked in when she was, this is back in the 40s, the 50s, 40s and 50s. She walked in on a, on a men's day of recollection at the parish. She just went in to make a visit. And the priest was, was um, and oh my gosh, he was telling those men that they have to treat their wives like children. And she, But my mother had read Kasi Kanubi, that your wife is not subject to, the, to you the way your children are. That's right. Your wife is your equal. She's your partner in childbearing and in raising your children and in helping to sanctify you, okay? And there's some bad ideas out there in the catechesis, and we need to combat those. We do. Don't just accept everything from the past as if it's all gospel truth. The gospel, yes, but weigh everything against the gospel and make sure that we're not taking things out of historical context, but also admit the history. All of those out there who you want to say that Vatican II caused the problems, I think you're ignoring a lot of the history. Amen. Please look at the history. I think I got my wife a little excited by that one question. <laughs> I think uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you did. When we come back, we'll continue with the Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
This is Jesse Romero. And I'm Terry Barber from the Terry and Jesse Show. And we invite you to listen to the Holy Hour of Power, High Energy Catholic Radio. We're two Catholics with a PhD in common sense. We're on Monday through Friday on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. What we're going to give you is masculine Catholic teachings on the faith. You know, we say we're too inspired to be tired, we're too protected to be dejected, and we're too renewed to be subdued. Why? Because we believe in Jesus Christ and His Bride, the Church. And we will take each issue of the day and show you how the Catholic Church has the answer for our culture. What we really do is bring men back into the Catholic Church, which it's about time to do. We want men to be leaders in their Catholic faith so that they can bring their family to heaven. Our program is not right versus left. It's right versus wrong. And our program is where Catholicism and culture intersect. It's high-energy Catholic radio. We're going to inspire you to fall deeper in love with Jesus Christ. Christ and his bride to the church. The Terry and Jesse Show on the Virgin Most Powerful app. In Luke 7, Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her because she has been shown great love. According to St. John of the Cross, Christians should always remember that the value of their good works is not based on number and excellence. Their value is based on the love for God that prompts them to do the works. May we always be motivated by true love for God and not worry so much about what we do, but why we do it. selling your home or your business property this is terry barber real estate for life underwrites the terry and jesse show and they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world and when they receive their referral fee they will give 80 percent of it to a pro-life organization wow that's 80 percent real estate for life.org 877-LIFE-US-1 This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Well, Jesse, thank you for joining us there and welcoming us back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we want to do a question of the week here. And this week, I, I thought we should talk on marriage. We got some questions about marriage this last week. And it, it, with all the confusion in our society, it's like, well, a couple of things come up. Why can't people of the same sex get married? Why do uh, two people who do get married, a husband and wife, a man and a woman, why do they have to remain faithful? And three, why do they have to be open to life? Mm, three good questions. All right. And what's interesting is when St. John Paul II wrote his Theology of the Body, and I would refer, I, please try and get that. Um, mm-hmm. Get uh, Michael Waldstein, Waldstein's, um, Waldstein is how we would say it, um, his translation, okay? And the deal is he goes back to the beginning. Yeah. You know, people think, oh, marriage, you know, what is marriage? We, it's, just a, it's just an institution. Well, here's the deal. What happened at the Protestant Revolt is the Protestant Revolt rejected the idea of marriage being a sacrament. Mm-hmm. What is a sacrament? An outward sign of an inward grace. In other words, it's a, a sign in this world that points to something far beyond itself. And in the New Testament, we're taught that marriage is a sacrament. It's a sign of the relationship between Christ and his church. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, what was it a sign of? 
And how do we know? There's a book by Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Gee yep. whiz, why would I be interested Three in Bishop Fulton married, J. Sheen? Three to get married, Three to get married. And you know, the it's, it's on marriage. And the first five chapters are Trinitarian theology. Right. And Terry and I read that book together before we got married. And I had to think to myself, why is he going into all this? Well, in the beginning, God made them in his own image, male and female, he created them. That's right. God made only two genders. He made male and he made female. Sin makes confusion. Sin confuses people about their gender and about who they are. And your gender, yes, it is in your DNA. You're either male or you're female, and that's it. The, the, the confusion comes from the psyche that has been wounded or hurt. And I apologize to all of those out there who have been neglected, who have been betrayed, or who have actually been molested. Because to be neglected, betrayed, or molested can lead to gender confusion. And so people don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. And then you can be trained, too, to, to reject your gender. And, and sometimes little children can get confused about things. Just a quick story. There was a little boy who had a little, he was fine as a boy. Mm-hmm. He was doing great. Mm-hmm. And he had a little sister with Down syndrome. Oh, yeah. And then he saw his sister playing with dolls and stuff. And he started, and he started acting like a little girl. And so they actually went to a counselor to find out what was going on. And what happened was the little boy noticed that his little sister got way more attention than him. And he thought, oh, my goodness, my parents don't love me. I'm a boy and they don't love boys. They only like little girls. So I have to be a little girl. So this came out and they were able to teach the family some strategies so that the son was getting as much attention and affirmation as a son as mm-hmm. his little sister was getting who had Down syndrome, who had so much greater needs. And so this can happen in a child. Yeah, they can get confused. They can get the wrong idea. Yep. It, there's, there's a delicate balance. When a baby is born, it attaches to its mother and identifies with its mother. But at some point, especially for male children, it becomes very, very important for that little boy, before he reaches the age of reason, mm-hmm. to identify with his father. Yep. And then again, if that, if that father figure is not a good, strong figure, it can confuse him as sure. to what fatherhood is and what being a man is. Yep. So there's a lot that goes in there, okay? So the reason only a man and a woman can get married is because man didn't make marriage. God did. In the beginning... When he made Adam and Eve, he made marriage. And the two, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the, the two shall become one. And what God has joined, man must not put us under. And when Jesus was asked about marriage in the yeah. gospel, he went back to the beginning. And that's why Pope John Paul II does in his Makes Theology sense. of the Body. And then marriage is, a, so it's a sign. And well, it's, it's a sign of the relationship within God. You see, God is not a solitude unto himself. He's a trinity of persons. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father pours himself out in one word of perfect self-knowledge, and that word is a person, his Son. And the Son returns to the Father, and in that embrace of the Father and the Son, there spirates the Spirit. And so you have in God, as John Paul II says, fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love. And so God is the original family. So the human family is made on the image of God. And that answers two questions. Well, so we have it. God made male and female. So that's why only a man and a woman can get married. Two, it images this is where I was going to the, go the relationship yeah. with God. And then as the sacrament, it's the sacrament of the sign of the relationship between Christ and his church. 
And that's why the church is against divorce. Exactly. And that's why our Protestant brothers divorced many, divorced the church by starting their own church. And many Protestants saw that and said, I get it. 40,000 denominations broke away from the bride of Christ. I want back. Yes. So that whole theology of marriage and the church really helped a lot of our Protestant brothers come back. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a lot of the Protestant and they pointed this out that mm-hmm. once you allow divorce, yeah. civil divorce, yeah. it, no, one, excuse me, once you break away from the authority of the church, yeah. once you divorce yourself from Christ's bride, yep. which is the church, mm-hmm. then civil divorce is a logical conclusion. Of course. And that's, you know, ideas have consequences. Sure. Be careful of the ideas you believe. And this also points out why marriage has to be fruitful and open to life. Number one, the Trinity is always life-giving. There you go. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are continually pouring out their life. In addition to that, they create and give life to everything that exists. Mm-hmm. In the church, the church, the relationship between Christ and the church is always fruitful. There's always new members coming forth. And so marriage, too, has to always be open to the possibility. We can never do anything to deliberately thwart the possibility it's not, you can't have a marriage where you've agreed not to have children because the primary purpose of marriage that's is... That's not a marriage though, is it? Exactly. If they were withholding, that's an example of what we're getting into in annulments. Let's say somebody got married, they went through the motions, but they were not open to life. Right. And they had agreed not to have children. Yes. Or one partner had made up their mind, marriage. I'm not going to have children. Yep. I will do everything to thwart the possibility right. of children. That's not a valid marriage. There you go. And you can't keep secrets from each other that apply to the marriage. That would also affect it. But there's a whole section in the catechism, yep. beginning with paragraph 1601. Read it. And, and going uh, through. There. Yeah, pa- par- to pick paragraph 1690. And you want to read that section to understand, well, actually 1666, um, to understand what marriage is in a Christian view. And it's very important because, again, it's a sacrament. It points to something beyond itself. And, it, and so marriage is between a man and a woman, and it's always open to the possibility of life. Does that mean that if your marriage is not blessed with children through no fault of your own, that somehow you don't have a marriage? No. It's people who deliberately say, I'm not going to have children, that that's what's interfering with the possibility of a well, marriage. Well, let's face it. There's no guarantee when you and I got married no that we could have children. No, there's not. And I had a valid marriage because we were both open. Open to the possibility yeah. of life. And even that, I mean, un- unfortunately, there are some young people, they, they maybe their parents had three or four children, and then they heard their friends who their families had nine or ten kids, and they say, oh, we thought your parents were good Catholics, and you only had three children in your family. You only had four children. Well, excuse me, honey. That's a form of persecution. We don't determine how many children we have. I had an aunt, mm-hmm. and, and my yeah. poor aunt, she was the oldest of 14 children. When she was a, <laughs> a teenager, family. her mother died. She always she dreamed of getting married and having a big family. She loved her brothers and sisters, and she wanted a big family. But when her mother died, she became the primary caregiver, her brothers and sisters, and her dad was working. Yeah. So she had to take care of all the household details, and she got sick. She got typhoid fever and rheumatic fever at the same time. Mm. But she didn't tell anybody she was sick because she had to take care of everybody. Well, you know what? That affected her whole body for the rest of her life. And so when she did get married, the doctor said, you'll never be able to have children. And she said, well, what do I have to do? And he gave her some suggestions. And sure enough, she got pregnant. Oh, but you'll never carry that baby nine months. And I'm like, doc, come on. 
And she said, what do I have to do to carry the baby nine months? Stay in bed. You can't get out of bed. So she did. And she carried that baby nine months. But you know, it's interesting. And this is why when people tell me Vatican II caused the problems, my aunt had that child in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And in the 1950s, all the women were saying to her, weren't you the smart one? Look at you. You only had one. Well, that was a form of persecution for her because she wanted a big family. And God only blessed her with one child. Now, my mother, who was having children in the 40s and 50s, got the opposite. Don't you know what causes all those children? Don't you know that there are, and these are Catholic women. We're not having the babies. Our husbands aren't going to be there to help us raise them. We're not having them. These are Catholic families, but there were no problems in the church before Vatican II. Obviously no problems. Everything was hunky-dory and all was fine and good, you know. Take another look at the history, honey. Take a real good look at the history. But read the section of the Catechism on Marriage and, and read again Genesis, the beginning, in the beginning, and ponder that reality that marriage is a sacrament. It points to something, and it was established by God. It's not established by men. Again, if you want to know what men would do with it, Look at the pagan religions that existed in the old, in the, you know, yeah. You had all kinds of problems, didn't you? When, and even in the Old Testament, you had problems because, because we didn't have Christ yet. And yeah. so the men did marry more than one wife, and they were allowed divorce out of the hardness of their hearts. But Jesus goes back to the beginning, the way God made it, before sin. And then he says, now I'm here. He doesn't say it in these words, but he's saying, now I'm here, and you have the grace to live this. So now it's time for you to stand up on your own two feet, take responsibility for your actions, and stop sinning against your marriage. By the way, adultery is a greater sin than fornication because adultery is not just a sin against the marriage. It's a sin of injustice against the family. It's not just a sexual sin, okay, against your sexuality. And it is a sin against your sexuality. It's it's the the immoral man sins against his own body. So you men out there who think that you can go around looking at pornography and going around fornicating or committing adultery, you're sinning against your own body. You're offending yourself first. You're, you're destroying your own flesh because you were made for union with God. You were made for greatness. You weren't made to exactly. go around committing sins. We're made for union with God, people. Yeah. And if you want to get five <laughs> eight different talks by Bishop Sheen... I'm free to get married. It's in his Life is Worth Living MP3. There's 50 talks, but five of them are on marriage. Call 877-526-2151. Make a little donation. You'll get Bishop Sheen at his death on marriage. We'll be right back with more on the Bible with the Barbers. Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. That's you know, right. If God gave us a lot, 
you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people, you know, I've got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta, we have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the divine mercy chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. For everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I so love it. Out there. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we come to understand. According to St. Augustine, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. May God grant us a strong living faith in Him and His divine plan of salvation and help us to believe so that we may understand. selling your home or your business property? This is Terry Barber. Real Estate for Life underwrites the Terry and Jesse Show, and they can connect you to one of 900 pro-life real estate agents around the world. And when they receive their referral fee, they will give 80% of it to a pro-life organization. Wow, that's 80%. Realestateforlife.org, 877-LIFE-US-1. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, welcome back here. Well, we've been fired up today, honey. <laughs> we have been fired up. Okay. And last week, we were reading chapter 17 of the Acts of the Apostles, and Paul was at Athens, and huge problems there. He tried to appeal to these intellectual guys, and what... What he came up against is he came up against man's intellectual pride. <laughs> yeah, we want to hear new ideas just for the sake of hearing new ideas. But you know what, honey? We don't really want the truth. And that's the deal about our ideas sometimes. Yeah. It's like we get so enamored with our ideas and we just want to talk for the sake of talking. But I don't really want to get to the core, the truth that's going to challenge me to change. And so Paul couldn't make a lot of converts in Athens. No. These intellectuals, you know? Ah, not that it's a sin to be an intellectual, okay? But where am I putting my trust, okay? And so, you know, our intellect is good. God made it, and it's beautiful. And by the way, that God exists is not an article of faith. It's a self-evident truth that if you apply your reason properly, you can come to know that God exists, all right? You need revelation to know who he is in himself because only God can reveal to us who he is. So after Athens, guess where Paul goes? Hmm. He goes to a place called Corinth. Does anybody know what Corinth was? Oh, yeah. Corinth was a port on the Isthmus of the... Like Vegas. Yeah, but it was, it was maybe more than that because hmm. Corinth had two ports. It had a port. It was on the Isthmus of the peninsula, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and it was, this, the most, it was the narrowest part of the peninsula. And so you had two inlets on either side. You had a... a what do you call them? A bay on either side. Yeah. 
So the ships would come, and there were times of the year when it wasn't safe for the ships to sail around the Isthmus, of, not to mention the time loss. So they, they built these rails, these wooden rails, and they were the first railroad, but it was railroad for ships. Mm-hmm. And they, would, they had a whole army of longshoresmen who the smaller ships would be emptied, and then they would pull them across the Isthmus on these wooden rails and pull them to the other side mm-hmm. with all of their cargo. Well, you also had a... Um, a temple there to Venus, uh, the goddess of love, which by the way, wasn't the goddess of love. She's the goddess of lust. Okay. She's the, the goddess of unbridled sexuality, which is unbridled eros is not good. Unbridled eros destroys you and makes you a slave. You become the slave of eros. Eros is that, that fleshly love that isn't bad in and of itself. God made it. But when you don't control and direct it, when you don't guide and direct it properly. And so the Corinthians were well, there were a couple things about Corinth. One, it's rumored from history that that's where venereal disease began. Um, it's also, if you were a Corinthian girl, that just meant you were a prostitute for hire. Um, it wasn't clear whether every sailor had two women or every woman had two sailors or a little bit of both going on. And there were thousands of little children running around who had no fathers because the these prostitutes were having children. And so you have this tremendous massive, broken humanity. They're not real intellectual. The people down in Corinth are not real. They're hard work and back-breaking work, but you know what? They can indulge their flesh a lot. And that's what they're doing. They're indulging their flesh. And this broken mass of humanity that is so morally depraved of anything good, it seems, becomes the place where Paul is able to plant the faith firmly. Mm. And God tells him, don't be discouraged. I have many friends in this city. Mm. You see, in Athens, remember, God has to resist the proud. He can't work with them. You gotta get rid, we gotta get rid of the pride. We need to renounce the pride and get rid of it. But Corinth, these people don't have any pride. Yeah, they have their sins of the flesh, but they don't have any pride. And because of it, Paul can reach them. And he... He is there in Corinth, and he stays there for quite a while, and he preaches the gospel. And it's interesting because he talks about the fact that he's there in Corinth, and he, he supports himself by tent making. Mm. His, um, he's joined there by um, Priscilla and Aquila, and they're tent makers, and Paul's a tent maker. And this is how he doesn't. Uh, want a burden? No, he says, I'm going to take care of my own needs. Exactly. He want, Now, he says, I have a right to ask for right. your support because right. I'm preaching the gospel to you, but I don't want to be a burden on you. So he works with his hands to support himself. So at night he makes tents and during the day he preaches the gospel. Wow. It's like, wow. Very pride goes before the fall. Yeah. We've heard that all our lives. I'm Excellent. wondering if this is a good example. One group was very prideful. Another group was humble enough to, to realize they needed... Uh, you know, salvation. They needed redemption, yeah. and they accepted it when it came. That's right. That doesn't mean they didn't have to struggle. You read oh. Paul's letters to the Corinthians. There, there were struggles struggle. in all this, you know. But, but he, he's there, and he, um, he's preaching the gospel, and he's doing, he's doing very well. And and Silas and and Timothy join him there, and they preach the gospel. And the Lord tells him in a vision, "Do not be afraid to speak, and do not be silent." For I am with you, and no man shall attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city. 
And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So for a year and a half, Paul preaches the gospel in Corinth without there being a big, huge battle. There's so many, the people are so hungry for them. And sometimes Mm -hmm. this is it. You know, when, when we're down on our luck, when we're totally dejected, we realize you know, it's kind of like what they say about the the addict, the, the the drug addict, or any addict, any addiction that we have. We have to hit rock bottom That's before right. we're willing to turn around and say, "You know what? I need help. I need help from outside myself. I really don't have it within myself to overcome this addiction." But there is help out there, you know. So the Alcoholics Anonymous and and different addiction groups and those turn to the Lord, turn to God, and ask Him for the grace that you need to overcome the addiction. And God can give us that grace, and mm-hmm. we can. There are lots of people who have overcome addictions. And you know what? It's not our intellect that changes men. It's not our learning. It's God's grace. And you know what? God's grace changes the hearts of men every single day. Paul had been breathing murderous threats against the Christians. He was a murderer because he thought the Christians were wrong and he was defending God's honor to the point of death. He was killing those who he wouldn't honor God the way he thought they were supposed to. And what happens? God converts him. He changed his heart. And Paul becomes the preacher of the gospel. And he also realizes, no, we don't kill people because they don't follow the gospel. We offer them the gospel, but every individual has to choose for themselves whether they're going to follow Christ or not. I can't make that choice for them. And I don't have the right. I'm not the judge who determines whether they live or die. No one has that right. Only God. God is the giver of life. And God wants us all to get to heaven. And he adds days and years to the life of the sinner that he might repent. So we pray for sinners, you know. And somebody asked me one time, how come these people who are so wicked are living such long lives? And it's like, well, are we praying for their conversion? Because God wants them converted. (laughs) But are we asking? We need to ask for the grace for their conversion. But after he's been there for a year and a half, then some of the Jews stir up a little trouble and they're, you know, they, they, they get a little jealous and they decide, you know what, we don't want him preaching this gospel that he's preaching. So then they bring him before the Roman council and the Roman, the Roman pro-council and he says, look, people, if this were a matter of the Roman law, I would give you a patient hearing. But this is about matters of your own, you know, your own worship of God. So this is with you. And and then what do they do? Poor Sosthenes, he was the ruler of the synagogue. In full view of, of Gal- Gallio was the proconsul, and in full view of Gallio's bench, they beat Sosthenes up, and, and he's, Sos- Gallio's like, no, this isn't my affair, and I'm not going to get involved. And he walks away. So Sosthenes had to take the beating. Paul had taken a beating before, but this time it's Sosthenes who gets beaten. So... And Paul is always, he stays, you know, there for a long time. And then he goes back and he's always going back. He's always going back to rekindle the faith in the places he's already preached. And this is a good thing we need to remind ourselves. Our faith needs to be rekindled. Amen. We need to pray every day. You know, don't think that going to mass once a week on Sunday morning is enough. We need, you know, why did, why did Our Lady give us the rosary? Well, because the rosary is the gospel in miniature. Mm. We meditate on the life of Christ. The rosary is supposed to be a meditative prayer. The Hail Marys, by the way, are from the gospel. Hail, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And Elizabeth said, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mm. 
Why do we call her mother of God? Because she is mother of God. And Elizabeth said it. She's the mother of my Lord, my Lord, Adonai, Lord, Mm. Yahweh, the Lord. So we meditate on that, but daily. We need to meditate on the life of Christ daily. If we're going to be like Christ, Mm -hmm. we have to know him. And if we're going to know him, we have to spend time with him, right? When you love somebody, you spend time with them. That's it. Do we love the Lord? If we really love the Lord is one hour or even 45 minutes or whatever it is on Sunday morning for those who come late and leave early or whatever, is that enough time? And by the way, going back to receiving Holy Communion, yes, you not only, not only do not receive without adoring and you not only do not sin by adoring, but you do sin by not adoring, um, proper thanksgiving. After you have received Jesus, don't be so anxious to run out of the church. Spend some quiet time in prayer with him. Thank him. What is this gift that you have given me, my Lord, that you come to me in such a humble way under the appearance of food? By the way, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, the house of bread. Hmm. And where was he laid? In a manger, a feeding trough. Is everything screaming out to us, I have come to be your bread of life. I have come to be the food for your soul. And then in John 6, he says that. I am the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. And no, his flesh isn't useless because it's in his flesh that he redeemed us. He is the fullness of Godhead in bodily form. We can't say that his flesh is useless. So Paul preaches to all these miserable sinners down there in Corinth that we would, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I can't go there. I mean, these prostitutes and these sailors who have no fidelity to anybody and, you know, wow, what a, what a mess of, and no, Paul preaches and Jesus says, I have many friends in this city. So we don't need to to put people down and we don't need to condemn them. We need to pray for the conversion of sinners, beginning with, you know, number one here, Me first, I need to be converted. And we need to beg God for the grace to see others as he sees them. Every person he created is dear to him and deserves to be loved. So we want to love one another enough to tell one another the truth. Okay? The gospel is demanding, but God gives us the grace to follow those demands and to live up to everything that he's asking us to live up to. Keep the Ten Commandments. Jesus didn't do away with them. So thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers. And this hour seems to have gone awful fast. But we hope you'll join us next week. And beginning next week, I will begin again my Bible study. And I'll remind you all of that. Um, Tuesday the 17th in the evening, I'll have my Bible study at the chapel. And then on the 19th, Thursday in the afternoon. So you've been listening to Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. And keep us in prayer, and thank you for listening. St. Faustina's Prayer for Priests O my Jesus, I beg thee on behalf of the whole Church, grant it love and the light of thy Spirit, and give power to the words of priests, so that hardened hearts might be brought to repentance and return to thee, O Lord. Lord, give us holy priests. Thou thyself maintain them in holiness. O Divine and Great High Priest, may the power of Thy mercy accompany them everywhere and protect them from the devil's traps and snares, which are continually being set 
for the souls of priests. May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.